1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Jonathan Earle about his 2017 book, Colonial Buganda in the End of Empire, Political Thought and Historical Imagination in Africa, published by Cambridge University Press as part of the African Studies series. Dr. Earl is Assistant Professor of African History and Chair of the African and African American Studies Program at the Center College. Dr. Earl, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, I wonder if you could begin uh, our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. So, my interest in Eastern African history emerged as an undergraduate where I completed a couple of studies abroad in um, East Africa, one in Kenya, the other in Uganda. My summer abroad in Uganda, and this would have been in the early 2000s, coincided with a period in Uganda's political history when communities um, in eastern Uganda, communities in Tesoland where I was spending large amounts of time, we're still living in the displacement camps after the Ugandan Bush War and the LRA insurgency in northern Uganda. But I was also spending large amounts of time throughout the kingdom of Buganda in southern and central Uganda. So dividing my time between Buganda and Tesoland brought me directly into spaces where I was fairly consistently confronted by two very different ways of remembering. Different ways of talking about the Bush War of the 1980s, and more broadly, the politics of Milton Abote, whose government um, President Museveni and the NRA, the NRM, overthrew after a five year conflict. So, for Teso communities, generally speaking, um, they had been powerful supporters of the Milton Abote government. Gonda patriots, royalists in southern Uganda, by contrast, very much saw Abote as a destroyer of their ancient, um, powerful monarchy. So these competing perspectives raised for me you know, lots of different questions. Um, how does public memory work? How do religious ideas and religious experience influence um, how people tell, tell their stories, their biographies? Um, and more broadly, how religion Um, impacts how communities tell and write histories of violence, um, and how those histories and stories become standardized and circulated. So um, after graduating, um, I returned to Uganda for a couple of years, which provided me um, an opportunity to begin formally studying both Luganda and Ateso. And that really became the foundation that I built upon when I decided to do a PhD in African history um, at Cambridge University where I went to study under Derek Peterson and a cohort of Eastern African historians um, that would have included um, John Lonsdale and um, John Eilif. Good. So that's, yeah, this is kind of how it all started.
1: (laughs) And and so from there, you know, how do you came to be interested in this particular project? What was the genesis of this project in particular?
0: Sure. When I began my PhD, I actually thought I was going to write a history on Anglican politics in early colonial Buganda, and I spent a better part of the first year of my doctoral research working in the institutional archives of the former British Empire, um, spending large amounts of time in the British National Archives in Kew, various archives throughout London, Cambridge, Oxford, Birmingham. Um, But by the end of that first year, right before I headed out for a year of field work, I had identified a number of political careers that were not really significantly active in the earlier colonial period, but were more active in the 1950s. And these biographies, this particular um, group of activists um, captured my attention. Um, And it's these activists that would eventually form the chapter structuring of the PhD theses, and then um, in time, the revised manuscript for um, the book. Um, and I think what happened once I, when, once I reached Uganda, I pretty quickly set about trying to see if I could find, um, track down any of the private papers that might have been left by these activists. Um, and my hope was that these um, private papers would allow me to move beyond uh, the framework of the institutional archives, um, and, um, which were mostly in English, and, um, and with this into kind of vernacular debates that were happening in the kingdom of Uganda in the 1950s. Um, and I was able to find um, private sources for a number of the activists that I had in mind, Ignatius um, Musazi who was uh, the founder of Uganda's first trade union and first political party, the Uganda national Congress, um, a moderate Protestant by the name of Eddie Molira, who um, had been instrumental in drafting Uganda's independence constitution and whose career was confronted with numerous obstacles, including um, exile in the late 1950s. And the Muslim intellectual Abu Bakr Mayanja, um, whose career was kind of at the center of debates about royal patriotism, national politics, and the role of Islam in the state in the 1950s. Um, and then a public healer by the name of Chibuka Chiganira, who had orchestrated a number of high-profiled political demonstrations in the mid-1950s. And I think finding these private collections um, in many ways um, – began to complicate, for me, a lot of the kind of the secondary literature that I had read up until that point and that these private papers began to show just how complicated were complicated and pluralistic were the um, political and historical visions circulating in Buganda in the 1950s.
1: Good. And I, actually, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about that particular um part of the, you know, that particular goal in the book, uh, because I think it's, it's, um, and that's one of the parts that I found more interesting, you know, that, uh, you'd really do manage to sort of try to break away from, um, this nationalistic histories or histories of nationalism where there seems to be like a, an African side and a European side and, uh they don't necessarily seem to speak to one another or, or even they're well-defined. And, and I think one of the things that you demonstrate with Test Tax is that th- those distinctions um, don't quite actually work once we look at the evidence. So can you tell us a little bit about that historiography, how that historiography gets complicated by, by, uh, by the stories that you tell about these men?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So each of these activists... Um, came from very different regions in the larger body politic that was Buganda, that was colonial Buganda. Um, so Benedicto Chiwanuka, for example, who was Uganda's first elected prime minister, came from a section um, in, in Western Buganda called Budu. It was a, a preeminent um, Catholic um, political community in the state um, Ignatius Mossazi came from an area um, called Bulamezi, which was on Buganda's northern frontier, um, northern frontier in relation to the Bunyoro um, pre-colonial empire. Um, Edirari Molira came from the area of Kochi, which by the late 19th century was a tributary state to the Buganda kingdom. And In turn, they were the inheritors of a particular type of politics that were localized to those specific regions. And those specific regions had different historic relationships to the center of power, to the kingdom of Uganda. And each of these regions were producing different types of historical accounts um, in relation to clanship, in relation to um, kingship. And then in time, in relation to the introduction of international literacies, religious literacies, other literacies that were introduced through um, kind of the infrastructures of missionary education. And so what I was interested to see is that when these um, different um, activists um, acquired colonial literacy and began studying in missionary um, schools, Um, They were exposed to um, religious literature, the likes of John Locke, Jean Jacques Rousseau, Harold Lasky, um, and Time. Um, And they were reading these um, sources in ways that attempted to enrich and complicate the regional historiographies with which they um, were attempting to of a certain new visions of political solidarity and kingship in the 1950s. Um, and they also did so in ways that often blurred um, literary boundaries, European epistemological boundaries. Um, activists uh-huh. were very comfortable drawing from ostensibly um, religious Uh, or sacred and secular categories um, in ways that paid very little attention to how these would have been classified or taught um, within the context of missionary education. So in working with these um, international literacy activists were quite comfortable drawing from um, having a Bible in one hand and Jean-Jacques Rousseau in another, or having the Quran in one hand um, and having Um, the works of James Augury, the Ghanaian intellectual, and the other. So it was that blending of international discourses for the purposes of addressing and speaking to local historiographies that I found um, so interesting and insightful to the the politics of the 1950s.
1: And, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about those politics? You know, how is it that, uh, you know, what... Oftentimes, I think when when we're writing intellectual histories, uh, you know, they're in response to something. So what what were the the themes? How is it that the questions that they were asking uh, were responding? What what were the questions that they were trying to respond to? Sure, that's a really good question.
0: So um, between 1953 and 1955, the king of Buganda was sent into exile. Um, Kabaka Edward Mutesa II for his refusal to support um, a closer union or an Eastern African Union. There were very real public debates and concerns about Buganda and Uganda being overrun by a particular class of British settlers um, from within the context of Kenya there had been much longer debates about the Swahiliization of um, Buganda politics, and so there were real public um, efforts to resist any sense of closer union with colonial Kenya. And when Mutesa refused to support these policies, um, essentially he was exiled to London, where he would spend the next two years. Um, When he was exiled, Kabako Mutesa was not a particularly popular king in Buganda. He found himself enmeshed in a number of uh, marriage controversies of the period um, and was seen to be very much in alignment with British policies in the region in a number of contexts. Um, This all changed with Mutesa's exile. Uh, Mutesa's exile... Um, in many ways, was Buganda's anti-colonial moment. Um, Out of the exile of the king, numerous patriotic movements emerged. Um, And in many ways, it was the exile of Kabako Mutesa that um, engendered the development of political parties in um, late colonial Buganda. So the question of kingship um, became a central question of public debate in the 1950s. And in turn, the activists that the book focuses on, um, coming from different geopolitical regions of the kingdom of Uganda, had very different expectations of what they wanted to see in their king and in their kingdom. So, um, again, public um, politics was shaped by these regional um, claims, and were being f- were being informed further by international literacy. So Ignatius Musazi, for example, um, very much saw himself as trying to make the public case for a very strong monarchy, and that if Buganda's King would be endowed with nearly absolute rights. That this would put the kingship in a position to overthrow the British Empire in southern Uganda, and to make that case, he's drawing from a much longer um, historical tradition in the frontier of northern Uganda, where Balamezi, um, the citizens in the Kingdom of Uganda. Well, the subjects in the kingdom of, Buga- of northern Buganda saw themselves as the protectors of the kingdom of Buganda. And in turn, is going to begin making a public case for kind of the, the radicalization of kingship within Buganda politics. Um, and to inform that argument, um, he's going to mine his uh, Bible. He was a former um, Anglican ordinan and um, is going to use his familiarity with Christian literacy to great effect to make the case for the importance of kingships within society. Um, And that was just one vision out of many. Um, One of his principal competitors was a a moderate by the name of um, Edidati Molida, another Protestant intellectual, uh, but who wanted to make the case for a much more inclusive vision of kingship, Um, A a kingship that, a a kingdom where there um, was political space for multiple ethnic communities in Buganda during the 1940s and the 1950s, which itself reflected um, the political tradition that he had inherited um, as a member of the Kochi kingdom. And Um, A kingdom that was politically aligned with other regions throughout Uganda, Western Uganda, um, in a way that the kingdom of Uganda um, historically had not been. Um, And um, Benedicto Chiwanuka is another intellectual that uh, the book looks at. um, And in in many ways, his vision was one of the more radical visions of the late 1950s. um, the p- type of political ind- intimidation that emerged in late colonial Buganda, in many ways, was directed against Benedicto Chiwanuka. And the Democratic Party, that was Benedicto Chiwanuka's party, and really because they're calling for a radical reform of kingship, and if necessary, um, kind of Republican alternatives within late colonial Uganda. So Benedicto Chiwanuka was not opposed to the possibility of completely removing kingships, and um, if, if that's what was necessary for the purposes of creating um, a more unified, integrated um, Uganda and of course for um monarchical royalists um uh, baganda patriots um that type of public argument in the late 1950s was anathema to um their sensibilities
1: and um now that you mentioned um one of the things that it's uh, uh that you try to do in the book uh is again you know diluting this distinction between sort of a secular um uh, sort of type of discourse uh, versus uh, a sacred discourse. And uh, I thought it was, uh, uh, I mean, and like the, the case studies that you chose obviously show how there was a, a pluralism of of faiths, you know, that some of these, they're not only coming from different regions and, and sort of like I said, different clines, but also uh, from a different background. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, where, where, uh, Historically, where this pluralism of faiths uh, uh, is, is rooted in, in, in the history of Buganda? So, Zanzibari
0: traders um, reached the courts of Buganda by 1844, Protestant missionaries by 1877, and Catholic missionaries by 1879. When Zanzibari traders and um, European missionaries reached the courts of Uganda. They arrived at a, a, a period of military political expansion um, and a time yep. in turn when there were large amounts of public debates taking place in Uganda about the expansion of the kingdom yep. by um, the late 19th century At the life of the court of the Kingdom of Buganda, there had developed a culture of high competition where um, hereditary chiefs, where administrative military chiefs um, were in competition um, over um, acquiring um, public legitimacy and in time um, of the acquisition of land as well. And because um, so in Buganda, r- religious missionaries and traders, their operations were largely confined to the royal court. Um, the kings of Buganda, the administrators of the kingdom, largely legislated where missionaries were allowed to go, where they were allowed to stay, um, and in turn, this um, brought about large amounts of debate in the royal court, where chiefs, clan heads. And converts began aligning themselves with particular um, missionary factions for the purposes of making these larger public claims. So, very early on in Buganda, um, public politics, um, or I should maybe put it this way that international religions get reworked into much longer, broader vernacular debates about power, authority, and public legitimacy. Um, So, so much so that by the 1890s, there's a series of what some historians would call a civil war. It's um, um, a a religious conflict um, in the early 1890s. um, In the first instance between Christians and Muslim converts, and then in the second instance between Protestant and Catholic converts, out of which ultimately Protestants are going to secure control of the state Um, with the backing of um, British military um, armament support. And um, the chiefs who align with the British by the 1890s, um, in many ways become the the, the principal administrators of the colonial state. Um, Protestant Buganda chiefs will acquire the largest land holdings in colonial Buganda, the largest amount of administrative positions within the the state will be administered to Protestant chiefs. And two Protestant chiefs will get very busy with writing official histories of the kingdom of Buganda. And two of the more um, um, consequential projects of the period were written by um, two Protestant chiefs, one by the name of Apollo Kagwa the other um, by the name of Hamu Mukasa. And they're writing extensively and they're writing numerous types of works on um, Buganda's political history. And they're doing this for two reasons, no, no less than two reasons. Um, the first is they're certainly trying to um, legitimize their own rule and the legitimacy of the Buganda monarchy to an international audience. Um, They're trying to show um, British administrators that the Kingdom of Uganda, like Great Britain ostensibly, has a powerful ancient monarchy that had governed society long before the British um, stepped foot um, on Eastern African soil. And at a second level, there are many ways trying to make um, assertions of political legitimacy within the uh, kind of the interior, interior moral economy of a Buganda politics. They're trying to make the argument that they are the legitimate inheritors of power in the kingdom of Buganda and that they are um, kind of a new class of political gatekeepers. And um, to do that, they're going to talk extensively about chronologies, they're going to rework Protestant literature, um, they're going to Um, think in many ways about um, the political um, expansion that was taking place in the late um, 19th and – I'm sorry, the the 18th and the 19th centuries. And um, essentially, they're going to try to make the case that they are the best-equipped public leaders to – Um, to stabilize the kingdom of Uganda after this period of military expansion in the early to mid-19th century. Um, At this time, there's a lot of public debate as well about um, a particular king by the name of Mutesa I, who in many ways was the principal king that brokered relationships between um, Zanzibari traders and Christian missionaries. But his uh, initial name had not been Mutesa, it had been Mukabya, um, and which is a, a word in Luganda which um, can be translated a number of different ways. Um, I think we can just, um, for the purposes of this conversation, um, just refer to it as one who causes tears or one who causes anxiety. But in time, he's going to become known as Mutesa, one who consoles, um, one who... Um, brings about a particular type of political stability. So by the early 1900s, um, Gonda activists are engaged in um, far-reaching debates about when precisely did Mukabya, this king, become Mutesa. Because um, Ganda historians feel that if they can make the legitimate claim that their respective religious communities, whether they're um, um, Muslim, Protestant, or Catholic were responsible for that particular type of conversion. This can become a way that they legitimize their governance um, before um, other Buganda throughout the kingdom.
1: I mean that explains a lot. I mean, I was uh, as I was reading, I, I kept uh, asking myself, like, where does this, um, you know, where does this conflict and this uh, these claims to to the past came, and that explains it very well. Um, can you also? One of the things that I thought was very interesting in terms of the structure, you know you chose these five intellectuals uh, but I imagine that uh, you had more material that you could have drawn from. Um, is, is there are there other figures that were not included in this piece and and why did you settle on, on these five uh, in this format sorry?
0: So the one activist who was in the original theses, who um, unfortunately did not make um, the book, um, was this prophet by the name of Chibuka Chiganira. Um, he was a um, came from a Catholic background, and um, in the mid 20th century is going to have an experience where the um, the, the one of the um, principal pre-colonial spirits or gods by the name of Chibuka. Will possess him and compel him to enter into public politics. And this occurs largely um, between 1953 and 1955. And he is a really interesting um, activist at a number of different levels. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, he's going to try to recreate the theatrics that had surrounded the. Um, kind of the, the, the earlier manifestation of Chibuka, the original um, god or lubale or spirit. Um, and um, will um, in turn um, find um, a section in Kampala and the outskirts of Kampala where he's going to climb a tree and began prophesying for the return of Mutesa from exile. He prophesies um, with a snake around his neck He from his tree will um, argue that he's able to cure women of barrenness. He's going to argue that he's able to talk through uh, the wind to reach uh, Motessa, who's in London, and um, he attracts quite um, a significant following, and certainly raises the alarm bells of colonial administrators, who eventually will apprehend him, will arrest him, and um, and it's not entirely clear what happens um, but he's arrested and he's able to get out of uh, prison and um, find his uh, find himself to um, a series of rocks, uh, really tall rocks in Kungu and he's going to climb these um, rocks again where he's going to continue to prophesy And the stories that surround his public um, prophecy are um, simply spectacular. Uh, when I was conducting oral, Um, ethnography at the sites where um, Chibuka um, prophesied. Um, Communities would often talk about how a Ugandan crane had swarmed into the prison cells and that he was able to climb on top of the Uganda crane and fly out of the prison to to his eventual prophetic sites. Others talked about how um, two-headed snakes would appear to um, elevate the prophet as he gave Um, um, Hope of the return of Mutesa. Um, And um, so, and what's also interesting about Chibuka is that it wasn't that it was also educated elites who were very interested in his career um, and in his activism. Um, There's a a series of negotiations in 1954 and 1955 um, where the terms of the return of the king are stipulated. And some of the um, uh, leading participants in the uh, negotiations, these are called the Namirembe negotiations, are going to go and frequent the sites where Chibuka is um, offering his prophecies. And this causes a large amount of controversy um, amid the committee who kind of saw themselves as the exemplars of a particular progressive um, Christianity. That wanted nothing to do, ostensibly, with this um, this prophet. But unfortunately, um, as the book developed and took on, um, you know, some new components, and I wanted to develop um, a different, a couple of different arguments within the book, um, it it really seemed to be more fitting to publish um, as a um, as a journal article. His p- particular cur- career. Um, another area that I had set out on and was hoping that I was going to be able um, to do more with um, was kind of the history of women's activism in the 1950s. And to that end conducted a number of interviews with leading activists, women's activists from the 1960s. Um, But ultimately I was going to do it. I wanted to be able to do it well. And I I wasn't able to, to get access to the type of uh, materials uh, that I had, that I initially had in mind um, so, in, in some sections of the book, I talk about the, the politics of domesticity. Um, but I think that's certainly an area where um, the book could be expanded more um, to think um, about kind of women's politics um, in the 1950s. Um, and and that's, a, that's kind of an area of, of research that, um, that, that that didn't make it in, into the book.
1: Um, and in terms of of you know the the uh the work that is in the book the, the this this four intellectuals um I thought it you know when when you one reads uh, it's a series of case studies um it's oftentimes and we think well that's a strategy to uh, you know to illustrate um this plurality uh but i think also e- e- you actually are able to connect them very well you know like it, 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 they don't read like a disconnected set of case studies. They, 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 do, they seem like they're part of, of larger debates. Um, so uh, can you just tell us a little bit more? You know, we talk, you, you already talked about the, the debate about kingship, um, but, you know, the, this notion of how to, the, the problem of how to make uh, this society, or at least the, the political culture more inclusive, uh, is one of them, you know, in the debates about citizenship, Um, And then you know the the uh, the the contributions uh, that come from the uh, from both from the Catholic front and and from the Muslim front uh, to sort of counter uh, to respond to to to, like you said this sort of uh, dominion that the Protestant uh, politicians had had. So can you tell us uh, how you how how you weaved uh, these actually much more. Um, unified story, you know, uh, than one would be led to believe when 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 we hear case studies. I wanted to be able to show and to illuminate
0: a, a very real conversation and the conversations that were taking place. And um, the intellectuals or the activists um, who are featured in the book were very much in conversation with each other. Um, they were at public rallies together for different reasons, on different occasions, um, at different times, again, for different reasons. They're writing letters from time to time to each other. Um, They're reading about each other in the Luganda and English press. Um, And in many ways, they're trying to navigate similar types of constituencies, um, rural communities, um, clans, Um, In some instances, they all go through similar um, educational institutions. So there was a certain, um, I don't think camaraderie is quite the right word, but certainly um, um, within the kind of the interiority of Gonda politics, there um, was this lively um, debate that was um, taking place where they were um, trying to contest public space. Um, And so in many ways, this compels them to have to address questions and to debate mm-hmm. authority as it's being articulated by different factions and different communities um, in the 1950s. So I think um, that it, in the book, it, you know, there's kind of an organic connection there, and I think that does reflect um, um, kind of. The parallels that did exist um, as they um, kind of moved throughout Uganda and Uganda, um, trying to make the case for their partic- particular movements or their particular uh, parties, um, and then also kind of the larger visions that they were trying to um, advocate um, in, in, in the 1950s and um, the 1960s. Um, and I think for me too, what I was trying to do with that was to problematize some of the earlier scholarship on um intellectuals and what we precisely mean by intellectuals and what we mean um by um elites um within a larger conversation about um the um the end of empire um that uh, well, it was certainly the case that they were educated mm-hmm. through um, missionary institutions. They were largely connected to very rural mm-hmm. communities and um, were reworking arguments that were circulating within rural communities. Um, and I, my sense was that this complicated some of the ideas um that had been made in the larger literature about um, intellectuals as simply being a kind of a product of missionary education, but in ways that had largely distanced a particular class of industrial um, colonial elites from what was happening in rural contexts. Um, so I tried to present them um, and to kind of think about them as cosmopolitan um, intellectuals um, who were navigating multiple arenas um arenas that overlapped um and in turn uh, brought them into similar spheres of debate and discourse
1: good and uh one last question that I wanted to ask is about your sources. you know you mentioned how you went uh in search of these private collections uh you make use of a lot of public records um it, one thing that is incredibly uh, interesting in the book is how you read uh, these materials um, you know you find not just letters but uh, you look at the marginalia and the notes and, and uh, the class book, like class book notes of some of these men so can you just give us a sense of uh, how, you know when you found these materials how do you uh, did you realize uh, you know this is this, this offers me this opportunity to read these materials in a new way
0: I think when I found the began finding these libraries um that accompanied the private papers, I didn't quite anticipate the extent to which these were um um rigorous annotators um and precise annotators with the types of sources that they um, um uh, with with the sources that they had in hand, so it made it possible, for example, in the case of Ignatius Musazi to see when precisely he was reading a section of the prophetic book of Daniel Daniel, um, in the early 20th century, um, or when Benedicto Chiuenico, at what specific point he was actually reading and annotating Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, because they were providing specific dates to indicate when they were uh, reading of these particular works. Um, and in some cases, as they're reading, um, and this I think particularly comes out for Musazi, um, that as he's reading his books, he's very intentionally raising questions about Buganda politics in the annotations, um, asking questions such as, is this what's happening in Buganda now? Or in the affirmative, this is what is happening in Buganda now. So, again, they're reading these sources with a clear um, ear to the ground of what's happening in Buganda. And so, of course, what one tries to do is to kind of follow the genealogies and the the life of, of these particular ideas. Um, are the annotations working themselves out into public discourse? Um, but at the same time, even beyond that, um, in what way do the sources themselves reflect a particular engagement with ideas that were circulating at the peer at, at the time? Um, so, you know, one of the questions I had to, you know, initially um, wrestled with, you know, were the, were the annotations reflective, were the annotations generative, um, in some cases, multiple colors are being used to underscore different sections of books and um, paragraphs um, and just trying to wrestle with, you know, so if, if in one section Musazi is using um, a yellow uh, pencil to highlight a section and then he switches to use orange um, to underscore a particular section, uh, was this just simply a question that he um had accidentally dropped the yellow uh, uh, pencil and grabbed the orange one because it was the closest thing to him? Or was there actually some type of um, uh, methodical study to what he was doing and using different colors to highlight different sections? Um, And those types of questions, it wasn't always self-evident why particular colors were being used. Um, but it was certainly um, a question that I, I wanted to, to think about and, and, and continue to think about. What do we as historians do with not only kind of the, um, the text of marginalia and kind of writing in marginalia, but also the aesthetics of marginalia as well, um, from color coding to the drawing of patterns? And then, again, how does that reflect and shape um, particular political historical projects,
1: and and how do you see that? I mean, I uh, like I said, sometimes we we read intellectual history, and it is not always clear how these ideas translated into events or decisions. Um, how do you see the this men uh, or this ideas, these debates uh, moving uh, into you know? the transition to independence and and the post-colonial period.
0: Well, I think in some cases, as they're working through these sources and translating these sources, one can very clearly make the connection between the production of political pamphlets, the writing of newspaper articles, the articulation of public speeches, that these reflect the general, um, context that's being uh, reflected on in these um, texts and that what's happening as well in the public um, um, in public politics is shaping to the types of questions that these activists are bringing um, with them when they um, kind of sit down to to read these texts to um, think about these texts um, and to debate these texts as well and I think that's an important point as well that in some cases Activists would go into um, private spaces to read their books. Um, uh, Benedicto Chiwanuka often did this. He had uh, periods of the day where he would um, simply read um, to himself. Um, But there are numerous cases, of course, where... um, where activists are coming together and they're debating and discussing um, the meaning and the interpretation of these particular types of texts. And those often get translated into the Luganda press, the English press as well. Um, So, you know, again, what to do with the question of kingship in the the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, um, for example, And of course, activists in the 1950s had very different ways of thinking about the uh, kind of the question of, let's say, King David, um, and whether, um, what, you know, to what extent does the Bible try to condone kingship as opposed to um, overtly criticizing kingship um, in ancient um, Palestine? So those types of questions were. Again, circulating widely in the luganda press and um in the public um, in in the public sphere
1: yeah, this is uh, uh, very very interesting um and well, I think I've taken quite a bit of your time so far uh before we have to go. Could you just let us know um what are you working on right now
0: so I'm working on three um projects right now um, with um, three colleagues. I'm currently working um, working on an edited volume on the decolonization of Uganda studies. This is uh, kind of a part of a larger way of, of thinking with and um, uh, interacting with larger debates in the academy right now on the decolonization of the curriculum. Um, second, with Jay Carney, my colleague, Jay Carney, who is at Creighton. um, We've just completed a manuscript on the history of Benedicto Chiwanuka, who receives one chapter in um, the book that we've been discussing, but we use in this um, second book, Benedicto Chiwanuka's career to rethink the politics of intimidation in 1950s Uganda. Um, And with that, This in many ways is a project about how the martyrdoms uh, that took place in the 1890s and the 1880s continued to shape public political debate throughout colonial Buganda. And certainly uh, by the late 1950s and the early 1960s, there are extensive debates about the martyrs um, of um, early colonial Buganda. And so the book kind of investigates what was at stake and the standardization in particular ways of thinking about the Catholic martyrs, the Protestant martyrs, um, and um, Muslim martyrs as well. Um, And what makes the martyrdom so interesting in Buganda is that community members from multiple parties are going to be killed um, by um, Buganda's kings for um, their um, disloyalty to the state. So in turn multiple religious communities in Buganda had something at stake in kind of these public debates over martyrdom and how that was shaping anti-colonial discourse in the 1950s. Um, and we're also trying to show in that in that book just the multiple Catholic visions that circulated not only in Buganda, but throughout um, Uganda more broadly. So um, this first book, the one that we've been discussing is comfortably situated in many ways um within buganda this um, this um, new this this new book um, is much more engaged with um, kind of uh, the making of modern uganda and the politics of modern uganda and the um final project that I'm working on um, very early on, um, still a lot of work to do on it, um, is a a project on the global circulation of Eastern African political discourse. Um, And what I'm I'm specifically trying to do in this third, um, this book project, is to um, think about how Eastern Africans impacted the emergence of political discourse in Great Britain and the United States on the eve of the First World War. And to do that, I focus on the political, um, we'll focus on the political careers of uh, Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt, both of whom had uh, extensive um, journeys in Eastern Africa in 1907 and 1909, respectively, um, so, for example, if we were to think just about Roosevelt, um, Roosevelt visits Eastern Africa shortly after he served as president between 1901 and 1909. Um, he um, he's going to visit Uganda in Eastern Africa at a time that the Republican Party was being divided by white supremacy organizations, including the Lily White Movement which sought to unravel liberal reforms following the American Civil War. Um, And Roosevelt's time in Eastern Africa seems to problematize his understanding of Jim Crow laws, of racial hierarchies in the United States, on which he had largely been silent during his presidency. So Roosevelt, after he leaves Eastern Africa, Um, He's compelled to leave the Republican Party and runs um, for a third term um, as an independent candidate. So I kind of um, use that in the larger case studies in in the project to think uh, kind of uh, about the emergence of ideas of progress, civilization, and again, how Eastern African intellectuals were impacting um, these international discourses.
1: Well, I can't wait for that one. That sounds uh, very, very interesting, challenging, but um, it definitely sounds very worthwhile. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, This was uh, Dr. Jonathan Earle uh, talking to us about his project, uh, his most recent book, Colonial Buganda at the End of Empire. Uh, which, by the way, is has, has a finalist uh, for the Bethel Ogot uh, Prize, which is offered by the East uh, African Studies Association for the best book in East African Studies. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Earl. Uh, we look forward to having you here in the podcast again to discuss some of your new books. Thank you.